Date of recording, the 19th of July, 2021. Welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Media with Vedanta Kari. For today's episode, we're talking about banned books. And my guest for today is Professor Jennifer Spitzer. Hey, Jen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Vedant. How are you? I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, and not to, not to um, embarrass you in your own um, podcast, but I just want to say that um, I got to have you as a student uh, a few years ago, and it was such, such an incredible pleasure. You were such a wonderful student. Um, and, okay. and I got to have you as a, as a student in banned books, as I, as I recall. So, um, you know, I think we had lots of really great discussions, you and I. Absolutely. So do you just want to quickly introduce yourself and your history yeah. with the subject of banned books? Like what got you into this? Well, I have to admit that it is not uh, the core of what I work on. I, I, I'm an associate professor in the English department at IC, and my main focus is on uh, literary modernism, sort of uh, experimental works from the first half of the 20th century. Um, uh, and then I work with uh, psychoanalysis and the medical humanities uh, and, and literature and medicine. So um, this uh, topic feels a little adjacent, <laughs> not directly related to my work, but I have to say, um, uh, well, first of all, a lot of the texts that I study from Joyce's Ulysses to Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover to um, Oscar Wilde's Picture of Dorian Gray to Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, right? These are all books I teach and study. Um, have all been banned kind of relentlessly. And several of those books were sort of at the mercy of these very public um, uh, obscenity trials in the 30s and 60s. Um, so I was, I was sort of tangentially interested in the subject that way. But I will, I will also just say sort of, um, I just find it a really fascinating and complex uh, subject. Um, you know, I, I'm interested in this idea that you know, uh, that, that books are deemed uh, dangerous, that they've sort of long been seen as um, in different contexts, you know, subversive to the state. Um, and I think one of the things that I find so complex about it, and maybe this was, this was part of the class, um, you know, I think we can see how dangerous it is at times to have limits on speech and expression. And I think we also see how dangerous it is sometimes to not have limits on speech and expression um, when, you know, and, and here I'm thinking of contexts like, you know, screaming fire in a theater or using hate speech or threats or harassment or, um, you know, misinformation about uh, climate change or, or, or deadly viruses. I mean, I, you know, so it's really, I think it's a nuanced subject. Um, uh, that that for me is is all about power, of course. Um, it's all about you know who gets to say what's dangerous or subversive, <laughs> um, but it's it's also all about context. So one of the things that we start talking about in my band books course, as you may remember, um, is this uh, this thinker and critic um, Stanley Fish, who says really yep. there's no such thing. Do you remember that? Yeah, the, I do. The Stanley Fish essay. Uh, a lot of students hate it, um, but I think it's purposeful in sort of telling us that, you know, the, the, the title is very provocative. It's, you know, there's no such thing as free speech. And I think fundamentally, you know, um, what he's saying is that um, context matters, that institutions are always sort of limiting the rights of free speech and protecting the institution. So um, I really think it's a, a complex issue um, that I'm really interested in. And of course, one thing that I will probably talk about again as we, as we talk, but uh, it remains interesting to me that the kinds of books that in the last 10 years especially tend to get policed, suppressed, censored, um, are written by or are um, 
discuss the experiences of LGBTQ authors or authors of color. Um, so I, I, the last thing I'll say is that I think it's very interesting that censorship uh, of, of artistic expression um, often seems to favor those in power with privilege and often tends to silence those who are marginalized, especially as it pertains to, to suppressed and challenged books. I didn't even think about the whole power thing. Like you're, you're absolutely right that LGBTQ plus authors and people of color are oftentimes suppressed. Like in your class we studied, I think it's Antango Makes Three from 2005, where right. it was about two gay penguins and that got banned for quote unquote homosexual themes. Yeah. It's absolutely true. Yeah, and you know what's interesting to me? So, right, so that is a, uh, one thing I have learned in teaching this course is that children's books and books with pictures tend to be the most kind of relentlessly um, challenged, by which I mean like removed from library shelves and taken off school curriculum. Um, and uh, a major reason is, right, so uh, religious and, and often conservative political organizations will, uh, as well as parents, will claim that these books are what, grooming children to be attracted to, you know, uh, a queer lifestyle, um, which is frankly, of course, completely homophobic, but also I think um, perpetuates this really dangerous, destructive, um, violent stereotype, you know, that queer people are kind of, are, are um, uh, you know, perpetrators of child abuse, that they're predators in some way, that even their books are grooming children, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, a lot of children's books tend to be suppressed these days, um, either because uh, of LGBTQ content uh, or because right they're, um, they're deemed bad examples for children. Like they teach, you know, Harriet the Spy you talk, uh, is another example of yeah. a children, <laughs> of a kid's book that's constantly being um, suppressed. Um, and of course, she sometimes lies. She sometimes distorts the truth. She sometimes talks back to adults. Um, so a lot of children's books are also challenged for that very reason. Um, and Tango Makes Three, of course, um, is one of those books. I think I think it made the the um, American Library Association's top ten most challenged books from like for like six years in a row from the year it was published on. I mean, every year it was at the top of that list. Um, and it's a true story about two male penguins that um, nurtured um, uh, an egg, right? And became a kind of, you know, non-traditional family. And, and that itself, that true story was, was so subversive to certain, I think, conservative viewers. Exactly. And so uh, in your course, we read a ton of banned literature like uh, Lolita, The Bluest Eye, which I absolutely love, The Bluest Eye, uh, as well as uh, Inv The Invisible Man by, uh, crap, I'm blanking on it, Ralph Ellison. And so yeah. what are the most common books that you've seen being banned in either curriculum or just the public sphere? Well, it's funny that you, so you mentioned uh, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Um, and it is true that when I started teaching this course about, I think, six or seven years ago, uh, maybe six years ago, um, it remained the case that Toni Morrison was probably the most relentlessly banned author in the 20th century. I mean, um, of course, there was the more sort of high profile banning of Ulysses or suppression of Ulysses and um, Tropic of Cancer and, and Lady Chatterley's Lover. But um, 
Morrison is interesting because most of her books have been, or many of her books have been banned. And it's sort of relentless, The Bluest Eye, Beloved. Um, uh, you know, this day and age, uh, it, it, there are books that, um, that are banned sort of more recently. I mean, certainly Captain Underpants, right? Books that are supposedly setting a bad example for children or contain some vulgarity, right? Um, Captain Underpants is a really commonly challenged book. Um, uh, is it called 13 Reasons Why? I think is a really, uh, you know, and The Hate You Give are both sort of contemporary texts yeah. that always make the top of those lists. Um, Perks of Being a Wallflower. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe for, for those reasons that we've started to discuss here, right? So um, LGBTQ themes or, um, you know, they're deemed sexually explicit in some way or there's profanity. Um, you know, The Handmaid's Tale is a book that was, that was sort of ceaselessly um, suppressed, uh, I think, uh, primarily because of, of vulgar language or sexual explicitness. Um, the Hunger Games is another book. Uh, Why was that banned? Uh, same reason, apparently, that, that Harry Potter was. Uh, the accusation of occult or satanic themes. Um, <laughs> you can explain that to me better, but... <laughs> That's <laughs> but <yes>. so ridiculous. <laughs> um, you know, I was just... This is a total tangent, and I, it will only take a second, but I was just watching Michael Jackson's video, Thriller, Mm -hmm. for the first time in years. And I remember the very beginning, I saw last night, the very beginning of it says, um, you know, I do not endorse these occult themes, you know, almost knowing in advance that this kind of video could also be suppressed um, uh, and not wanting to associate himself with, with magic or occult uh, ideas. And I think that makes sense because I think Michael Jackson, I believe he was a Jehovah's Witness as a child. Right, right. So that would be another reason for him to kind of disavow the content a bit. <laughs> yes, and we mentioned examples like The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Uh, I think it goes in the same category as uh, Huckleberry Finn and To Kill a Mockingbird, where it has a lot of racism, and that's yeah. why they were challenged. I remember uh, from 2017, as recent as 2017, To Kill a Mockingbird was banned in the school because it made readers uncomfortable with, I, I presume, the racism element. But... It's right. kind of like if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So you can't just ban stuff because it makes you uncomfortable. Right. And of course, you know, I mean, thinking about books that, that have been banned for that same reason, because they depict racism, right? Or they depict um, racial epithets. I'm thinking of, you know, The Bluest Eye or I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings or um, even Octavia Butler's Kindred was uh, was suppressed. Uh, um uh, black boy, invisible man. I mean, it's it's such a misuse of or misexplanation, right? Because of course, um, these texts are are talking about, uh, you know, what the experience of being a black American is, what it is like to be a citizen in this country. I mean, it's 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 um, also um, you know scrutinizing the dynamics of race and racism. Um, uh, you know, so the idea that they are removed for for depicting racism is so um, is so offensive, right? When really, what it is 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 it's a kind of denial, we might say, of the ongoing experience of racism and white supremacy in the U.S. Um, and a suppression of mar you know of the experience of marginalized um, writers and and of course characters, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say. 
um, authors of color, uh, you know, from every stripe have, are, especially in the last 20 years, I mean, I'm thinking of books like Dreaming in Cuban, um, the autobiography of Malcolm X have all been on the chopping block, have all been, um, you know, uh, have all been challenged in some way or another. And I, I, I you know, this, she's a white author, but I, I love thinking about Alison Bechdel and she yeah. was interviewed and asked um, how she felt about Fun Home being, being ch a challenged book and making the list kind of year after year. She said, I feel honored. <laughs> like there's something, of course, you know, we know that a book means something to audiences when it has been challenged. We know that it has had an impact. Um, you know, on our society when it has um, been put in the category of challenged. So yes. it is a kind of paradoxical honor <laughs> in, a, in a sense. Yes, and you mentioned Alison Bagdell, and uh, would you agree that in general that it's harder for women authors to be published without censorship with examples mm -hmm. like uh, Are You There, God Is Me, Margaret, and The Handmaid's Tale, and The Witches, and of course, uh, Fun Home by Alison Bagdell? That's a great question and I'm not you know totally certain of, of my answer but I think one thing that's interesting is that you know several of the books that have been that have been challenged like I'm thinking you know are you there god it's me margaret um were challenged because they depicted you know female uh sexual maturity or female reproductive issues right that they they dared uh to to depict um uh, or talk about menstruation, you know, so it's interesting to me that, you know, and I think this, this is also the case in Fun Home, you know, that female sexuality is still deemed, um, uh, and female sexual independence are still deemed, you know, kind of palpable threats. And uh, a text that I teach in another class consistently, The Awakening by Kate Chopin, um, which was published, I think, in 1899 for the first time. I mean, it literally, um, the outrage that she would depict uh, a kind of sexually independent woman who has sex outside of marriage made that book virtually disappear and sort of ruined her career. And, and that book was sort of recuperated by feminist literary scholars in the 60s and 70s, but it really ruined Kate Chopin's career uh, after she was a rather kind of popular writer. Yes, and uh, I feel like just the female independence is very challenged. Like, have you ever read A Doll's House by Henrik Ibsen? Oh, yes. Yeah. And so the ending, and spoiler alert, where Nora leaves the house, that caused a lot of stir because she left her husband. And uh, there's a German production that altered the ending so that Nora didn't leave the house. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Uh, I'm not surprised at all, right? Uh, she's sort of reinscribed and like imprisoned in the house in that in that reinterpretation, right? Of course, that makes sense, right? That that um, play was also um, written around the time The Awakening was written. They're kind of I sort of think of them as companion texts. Um, so yeah, I think your question is really on point. You know that um, depictions of women's um, liberation, sexual independence, or just sort of um, you know, adultery or independence at all um, have long been deemed um, threatening um, to, you know, we might say to audiences, to the state. Yeah. And are there like any books that you could at least see, like, have you ever agreed with a, a book being banned, like say Lolita? It's a, you know, it's a great question. Um, uh, you know, I, I, in personally, I certainly think that certain books <laughs> um, should not 
you know, should not be circulated. I mean, of course, I'm, I, I wonder, right, in this kind of speculative exercise, like, what if Mein Kampf hadn't been written and circulated? Like, what if the Weimar Republic had um, refused to let Mein Kampf circulate? Or um, what if, um, you know, I'm thinking of, is it called the Articles of the Elders of Zion, you know, this really anti-Semitic text that, you know, um, essentially uh, accuses uh, Jews of being the head of these global conspiracies. And, and it's what's so upsetting, of course, is this is uh, a narrative that still uh, it seems to keep, you know, insisting itself in our own uh, culture, you know, that Jews are part of this kind of global conspiracy. But of course, this partly came out of this, this text. Um, so I have to say, yes, that there are, in my own sort of, um, perfect world. I, I wish those two texts and, and several others, you know, that really promulgate um, hate and that, uh, you know, prefer these kinds of um, conspiracy theories really weren't um, circulating. And of course, for me, that that transfers to these kinds of conspiracy theories that, you know, that we find online today that either, you know, that deny the existence of COVID or claim that, that um, you know, that it's a, it, it's a hoax or it's invented by Bill Gates or whoever, you know, I, I do think that there's, um, I, I would love to have this pure statement that I just always believe that books should be <laughs> freely circulating, but I do think that some books that promote um, harm, uh, you know, are um, dangerous. Yeah. I agree. Like, there are some cases where, like, with Mein Kampf, that should absolutely not be circulated. Like, that is very harmful in the stuff that it's the lies that it's promoting about Jews. Yeah. I wonder if you feel this way too, but as a, as I teach this course, um, you know, I don't have this kind of, um, and sometimes students have been frustrated with me because of it, this sort of pure or idealist notion that all speech and all expression should be protected because of, of course I, I, I don't think all of it should. I think there's speech that does um, that that speech, like Stanley Fish, you know, says, really bleeds over into um, into harm, you know. And and of course, I you know, not to be too political, but we, we just had an administration, um, you know, that called uh, coronavirus, you know, the China virus, um, which ended up, you know, um, promoting a lot of violence against uh, Asians and Asian Americans, you know. So I I do see the way, uh, and and I do acknowledge the way um, speech and expression can absolutely be harmful. And it's often up to the community, you know, to decide whether that expression should be tolerated. Yes. And so are there like any other like negative effects of banning books they can think of? So many. I mean, I think certainly, um, you know, there's this, well, one thing I was going to say earlier, there's this kind of paradox that we talked about in our class, which is that, you know, books that get banned tend to be more popular, they create a bigger readership, they, you know, and, and many formerly challenged texts have become literary classics. So there's this sort of interesting paradox about banning books. Um, but I would, I would say, of course, and, and uh, you know, uh, we need exposure to books that, that, um, that expose us to other forms of culture. Uh, I think, you know, ex expose us to other experiences, identities, lifestyles, uh, experience, you know, cultures, um, you know, it's about expanding our minds. I think, uh, you know, fear mongering works best when you have uh, a populace that doesn't read, that doesn't educate themselves, that isn't well-educated. So I, I certainly believe um, that in some ways, books are our kind of best uh, antidote at times, books and education to this kind of fear mongering that, that um, 
that works so well, for example, in the United States. Um, I think it's about affirming experiences. Uh, you know, I, I just taught um, Carmen Maria Machado's um, books over the last two years, um, and especially her book in the Dream House, which is all about um, um, domestic violence and a queer relationship. And, and I have to say so many of my students said, and this is a book that has been challenged already, said, you know, I'd never um, seen myself represented before. And I feel like this book sees me in ways that other texts don't. And so, you know, feeling seen, uh, uh, especially for uh, for folks who, who represent kind of marginal identities, um, creating appreciation for the arts. I mean, I think all of these things sort of disappear when we challenge books. Um, and I often, and, and part of the reason I, I, I think books are often banned, right, is that they sort of utter uncomfortable truths, right? And so we have to be able to sort of grapple with difficult ideas. So, so these are all, I guess I'm turning the question around and saying, these are the things that, that books allow us to do and, and why, um, um, I think it's it, it, it's dangerous for the most part to be um, to be challenging books. Uh, you know, every author, author, uh, authoritarian authoritarian excuse me that word is just getting garbled in my mouth. But every authoritarian regime, you know, has used censorship and, and banning as a tool. Um, and so, you know, there you know there's ways in which these books sort of expose things about the state that I think uh, are, are so important. And so what do you think about this debate about whether parents should have control over what their kids read in a classroom environment? And when I say students, yeah. I mean like high school age students. Oh, high school age students. Yeah, great question. I mean, I, I certainly as a mother of an eight-year-old, you know, understand, you know, kind of titrating certain kinds of texts for children or kind of gradually exposing them to things, um, you know, and here I'm talking about, you know, sort of maybe texts that depict violence. Um, but, I, you know, I, I yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm mostly um, angered by the move on the part of school boards and parents and, and political and religious organizations to, um, you know, keep, keep high school students from sort of uh, what you know, learning about structural racism or the you know histories of slavery or uh, learning about romantic or sexual relationships or um, learning about um, you know uh, rape or sexual abuse. I mean, I, I you know I, I think there's one thing uh, you know about sort of protecting um, our children from those things, but you know I think students need context. They need to be able to to sort of in, in order to negotiate their own experience, I think they need to see those experiences reflected in books. Um, you know, I, I really do believe that so much of my own identity I learned from books, um, as well as ways to navigate the world. So, you know, if you were, a, for example, a, a queer student um, child or high school student living in a very uh, rural, a very conservative part of the US, um, um, sometimes these books are the only, um, you know, you know, books that depict um, um, queer life are, are the only connection they have um, to a part of their identity that feels um, silenced. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think especially at high school, they're at the minimum 14, 15 years old. So I think they're old enough to at least know about these things. Whereas elementary school, like you mentioned, you have an eight-year-old where you might have a much smaller tightrope, but high school, I think, is fair right. game for that stuff. 
Yeah, I really agree. And I, and again, I just think the most, one of the most important things that books can do for us is to expose us to lives that are not our own, um, you know, to cultures that are not our own. I mean, you know, it breeds affirmation and tolerance and uh, enthusiasm about other parts of life. So I, I think it's, I actually think it's dangerous, frankly, um, and counterproductive to constantly be sort of policing what high school students read. I, I'm thinking of this famous case, which I was reminded of when I was sort of um, thinking about this um, podcast, which is, you know, thinking about these high school sophomores who were reading Slaughterhouse-Five, um, uh, you know, about the impacts of war. Um, and uh, in 1973, uh, the school board deemed this book inappropriate for sophomores and all they confiscated all of the copies of this text from their lockers and then burned them in a very public brawn outside the school. Um, and that's a very dramatic thing that, you know, doesn't happen uh, anywhere near as much these days. Um, but, you know, of course it, it sort of um, evokes, you know, that era of, of, of the Nazis sort of burning literature by Jews and other so-called subversive authors. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Fahrenheit 451 in a way. Yeah. Oh gosh, you're making me wish I had read that book more recently. <laughs> but it is. I think you're right. Right. That is that is about the policing of of um, of knowledge and information. And so I guess we should wrap up. And so we've talked a lot about uh, banned books when they should, when they shouldn't. But what do you think overall needs to change with this discussion of banned literature, whether it be in uh, curriculum or the public sphere? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. Um, in terms of what needs to change, I mean, I think we need to really examine um, which books are being challenged and suppressed and deemed inappropriate for children. And of course, um, you know, I'm thinking of this old statement by Oscar Wilde, who said, you know, we something about like how we ban books that show our culture, our own face, or, you know, and there's something to that, you know, so, um, you know, the fact that the books that are so um, often challenged these days, um, happen to be by authors of color, happen to be uh, by LGBTQ authors. I mean, I think what needs to be changed is um, how, I mean, you know, how much we sort of violently suppress the histories of our own oppression in the U.S., um, or whether we can, you know, we, we can translate that to another debate that's happening about whether critical race theory should be taught in uh, in schools and colleges. Um, uh, and so I think a real honest confrontation with the kinds of books that get that get suppressed um, is sort of long overdue um, because it says something about, um, you know, how hostile this culture still is to um, queer and trans uh, experience, to the experiences of, of, of um, disenfranchised groups. Um, and I think that's, you know, another reason why we, we keep fighting for, for um, you know, the freedom of that kind of expression, because, um, you know, what happens if we, if we wake up in a, in a world that doesn't allow us to think about the, you know, our, the history of our, of our country or uh, global histories of power and oppression and, and colonization? Um, so that's my sort of roundabout way of saying um, you know, that we, that we keep examining which authors and why are the ones being policed. And so 
Professor Spencer, do you have any other final comments or any other books that you'd like to quickly reference that have been challenged or banned? Well, I'll just end with a sort of um, interesting ditty, which is, you know, when you, when you mentioned sort of books that are kind of head scratchers for why they've been banned. Um, uh, one that always sort of makes me laugh is, is the dictionary. What? <laughs> the dictionary. <laughs> Uh, I know I'm sort of doing it for laughs, but it, it is true that um, when certain words like oral sex were were, were uh, introduced into the dictionary, certain factions tried to get the dictionary um, banned. Um, you know, so it's 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 quite interesting to me. I think, um, you know, the, like where our values are. If we can't tolerate the phrase oral sex or the word or the notion of what it is but we seemingly can tolerate sort of um, police violence against minorities, or we can tolerate global warming. You know, what, what, what do we put our emphasis and our values? Um, I think is, is something um, that <laughs> that little anecdote raises for me. Hi, Professor Spitzer, thank you so much for agreeing to be on my podcast. This was a very fun and very thought-provoking conversation that we just had over the past half hour. Oh, I enjoyed it so, so much. And, and thanks so much for having me on.